Buenos días. Good morning. And welcome to this virtual meeting about the Venezuelan exodus, Latin America and the Caribbean, the impact of COVID-19 and uh, prospects for the future. More than 5.5 million people have fled Venezuela since 2015, making this the largest exodus of migrants and refugees in the world, a number only uh, surpassed by the Syrian refugee crisis with the pandemic, which has uh, hit our region so hard. The situation of Venezuelan migrants is that much more and, and getting more difficult as are the challenges faced by the countries that receive them. In this event, put together by the World Bank and the Migration Policy Institute, we are going to exchange ideas uh, with leaders and experts from our continent about the challenges, what this means and what uh, the opportunities are that this presents. That is the Venezuelan uh, migration phenomenon, Latin America and the Caribbean. I am. Uh, Josefina Townsend, a Peruvian journalist, I thank you very much for the opportunity to moderate uh, this panel on a topic that is of particular interest to me, given that Peru is the country that uh, the second uh, has received the second uh, largest amount of uh, Venezuelan refugees and next only to Colombia. This uh, event is being broadcast on Twitter at Banco Mundial LEC and uh, W be Caribbean, you can also listen in uh, with the Migración Venezuelana uh, and uh, hashtag Venezuela Migration. We also have simultaneous interpretation into English and Spanish. You can choose the, the language uh, that you want to listen to this conference in uh, going to the world icon at the bottom of your screen. Now, our um, hosts are Carlos Lipe Jaramillo, the Vice President of the World Bank for Latin America and the Caribbean, and Andrew Sealy, the uh, Chair of the uh, Instituto de Política Migración. Carlos Felipe, Andrew, good morning. Thank you for being with us here today. We also have with us our panelists, Karina Gould, Minister of International Development of Canada, Ambassador Alan Wagner, Minister of Foreign Relations of Peru, Alejandra Botero Barco, Presidential Advisor for uh, Management and um, uh, Enforcement in Colombia, Felipe Muñoz, who heads up the Migration Unit of the Inter-American Development Bank, Nancy So Jackson, uh, who works with the uh, U.S. Department of State in the Office of uh, Population, Refugees and Migration. Now, to kick off this conversation, let's hear from Andrew Seal. Thank you very much, Josefina. Uh, it's a pleasure for me to be with you here today. I'm going to switch to English. event, as Josefina said, if you uh, did not catch what she said, there is interpretation available, and you can go to the bottom of the screen. Those are for the English-speaking folks. Um, I'm Andrew Seeley again. I'm, uh, on behalf of the Migration Policy Institute, extremely pleased to welcome you to today's event, From Crisis to Growth, Latin America's Response to the Venezuelan Exodus. Um, and we're very honored to, to co-organize today's event with the World Bank Group and, and to be with Carlos Felipe Jaramillo, who we'll hear from in a moment. Um, and I also want to thank Paula Rosiasco from the World Bank Group and my colleagues at MPI, um, Diego Chavez, our, our senior manager for the Latin American Initiative, and Lisa Dixon, who's our senior event manager. Thanks for everything you did to, to make uh, today's event possible. Um, Latin America and the Caribbean, as Josefina has said, is really the, the scene of some of the biggest migration movements anywhere in the world today. The Venezuelan exodus is by far the largest, um, with over five and a half million people, but there are also important movements from Central America, Haiti, Cuba, and other countries. Um, overall, we have seen enormous pragmatism in the region um, in responding to, to migrants who have arrived in different countries. 
Um, countries have largely tried to figure out how to provide legal status, um, how to integrate uh, migrants into the school systems, into healthcare systems, and into the labor market. Um, some of this is the result, of course, of existing laws, of constitutional guarantees, of regional agreements, mobility agreements that existed previously. But a lot of this is the effort of, of public officials and civil society to try and come up with creative ways of making sure that people can be welcomed and integrated in their new societies. Um, there's an understanding that this is good for migrants, but it's also good for the host communities when people have legal status and are integrated into basic services. This is, of course, incomplete. It's different from place to place. It's uneven, unevenly textured, but overwhelmingly we've seen a response in Latin America and the Caribbean, which differs in, in notable ways from what we've seen elsewhere in the world and is much more open in many ways than we've seen elsewhere in the world. And we've also seen humanitarian agencies, international cooperation, working on some of the immediate needs that people have as they leave Venezuela and they arrive in the new countries of origin. This work needs to continue. There are still many people who lack legal status. We're seeing Colombia's right now, the Colombian government, as you'll hear in a moment, is, is working on regularizing a very large number of people. Peru is doing the same thing. Several other countries are at this, uh, Dominican Republic and others are as well right now. Um, there are still issues on access to schools and healthcare and housing and labor market. But now we're at a question of how do you convert in addition to these things that are the immediate challenges and where the focus much of our research and the focus of the efforts of the World Bank and of the country governments and civil society four or five years ago when people started to arrive, we're now shifting into a different phase. That phase one continues to be important, but phase two is how do you convert migration into development? Really make sure that, that as people arrive, it benefits everyone. We do know from previous studies that, that migration tends to grow the labor force um, and it tends to therefore lead to economic growth overall that when people come with high levels of skills, and my colleague Diego and, and Carlos Echeverria did a study with the IOM that looks at the, the fact that, that the Venezuelan exodus is, is full of people with, with actually a great deal of human capital, with, with high levels of education compared to most home societies where they're arriving. This is even more true. I mean, not only does it generate a growth of labor force, but it adds needed skills into the labor market as well. Um, also, migrants tend to be quite entrepreneurial. And the question becomes then, how do you unlock these positive incomes outcomes by looking at questions of credentialization, credit access, um, education, particularly higher education, other areas that have not been the focus in the first phase? Obviously, there are also enormous dislocations that happen. I mean, we, people are moving into societies where schools and healthcare systems and housing are already under stress. And so there's also an urgent need to figure out, and, and much of the labor force is informal. And so there's an urgent need to figure out how to make the investments in those areas that, that also help people, help migrants succeed, but also help host communities succeed, that help everyone rise at the same time. So one question is how to ameliorate, but not only ameliorate, but generate new outcomes in public services that have been under strain in the past, that are under more strain with migration, but could really be brought up to a new level. And the second is really how do you take advantage of an opportunity that's happening. We, we, we talked about this as a problem four or five years ago. There were a few people like Felipe Munoz, who's on the call, who, who talked about this as an opportunity, but, but often the conversation was about the problem, people arriving, how do we deal with it? The new question is, how do we make sure this is an opportunity, not just for migrants, but for everyone in Latin America and the Caribbean and the societies where people are arriving? So it's a great honor to be with you here today. You can also follow this on at Migration Policy. Um, on Twitter. And let me turn it back to Josefina Townsend, who is a truly distinguished journalist from, from Peru and a great honor to be with you, Josefina. 
Gracias, Andrew. Gracias. El honor es mío y gracias por enmarcar esta, esta conversación y presentar eh, los desafíos y oportunidades. Thank you very much uh, for framing this discussion. Now, before starting with this exchange of ideas, let's hear from the voices of the Exodus. Yo soy María Gracia Travieso, tengo 34 años de edad. Bueno, soy técnico agropecuario y mamá de cuatro niños. Soy de Venezuela, de Maracay, Estado de Aragua, y vivo aquí en Bogotá, Colombia. Salí sola con mis hijos. A última hora, mi hermana, al ver la situación de desespero que yo tenía, decide acompañarme. Y uno de los desafíos más grandes fue poder conseguir empleo. En el área donde yo trabajaba, imposible porque estoy ilegal, no tengo papeles. Soy William Buitrago, migrante venezolano. Llegué a Ecuador hace tres años y medio. Soy entrenador internacional de voleibol y jugador de voleibol. Cuando decidimos emigrar aquí a Ecuador, no quisieron entregarnos los, los papeles de nuestros niños en las escuelas. Eh, cuando fuimos a, a ingresarlos en los colegios aquí en Ecuador, no, nos pedían esa, esos requisitos, esos documentos. Y, y se hacía muy difícil y fue hasta conseguir un amigo que tenía un colegio privado y allí fue donde pudimos accesar a la educación de los niños. Yo soy Eutimio José Pacheco Brito. Llegué al Perú hace tres años y medio. Mi esposa dice que hay que pagar el precio de la migración y lo hemos pagado y cuesta. Que primero no te conocen como profesional y hay mucha desconfianza. El tener que hacer más horas de trabajo que de repente otro este, que habitualmente tiene un contrato. El precio de la inestabilidad laboral. Empecé en la búsqueda, bastante difícil, eh, de trabajo, hasta que por fin logré dar de ayudante en un restaurante. Bueno, la pandemia para todos fue totalmente devastador porque el restaurante cierra, quedó desempleada de nuevo, otra vez empezar desde cero. Evidentemente con la llegada de la pandemia hay un poquito más de vulnerabilidad porque la mayoría no, no tiene su seguro social, en caso de ser contagiado es muy complicado acceder a, a, a la salud pública. Cuatro meses antes exactamente decidí emprender creando mi propio club de voleibol. Fueron llegando las niñas por sí solas, gracias al trabajo, a la constancia y la disciplina que nosotros tratamos de, de infundir desde nuestro club. Es allí donde empezamos a sobrevivir gracias a, al emprendimiento que, que tuvimos desde el club privado. Mi situación económica mejoró con la pandemia, tristemente, pero es una situación que ha permitido incorporarme al campo de trabajo con mi otra especialidad, que es la terapia intensiva. La mayoría, por no decir casi todos, porque este, de los que están trabajando en esa primera línea, como la llaman, este, somos extranjeros. Eh, cumplo turnos, pero también hago guardia de 24 horas. Allí sí paso pues, este, todo, 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 todo el día. El riesgo es para mí y para mi familia. Ese riesgo lo tenemos que asumir. 
La migración trae como mejora conocimientos, crecimiento en el área de todas las personas que vienen aquí. La distinción de los que venimos de Venezuela es que somos atrevidos, somos capaces de hacer este, cualquier cosa. Los migrantes venezolanos tenemos mucho que aportar. Podemos enseñar nuestras culturas, entrelazarlas juntos y de ahí comernos el mundo. Son historias que, que conmueven, que al mismo tiempo nos inspiran para conversar además ahora sobre, eh, con nuestros panelistas sobre el éxodo venezolano en América Latina y el Caribe, el impacto del COVID-19 y las perspectivas para el futuro. Escuchemos la perspectiva del Banco Interamericano de Desarrollo con Felipe Muñoz. Felipe, Latinoamérica hemos visto en nuestra región es una de las más golpeadas, más afectadas por el COVID-19 y la pandemia afecta de manera desproporcionada a los más vulnerables, entre ellos muchos venezolanos. Hemos escuchado el caso del entrenador de volei, de una de las voces del éxodo. ¿Cuál es la situación en este momento de los migrantes venezolanos en nuestra región? Josefina, muchísimas gracias y primero que todo. Thank you, Josefina. Let me thank you for having invited the Inter-American Development Bank and the Migration Unit for this high-level panel. It is a pleasure to share the panel with the Minister from Canada, the Minister of Foreign Affairs, with Nancy, the Minister of Colombia, who is a wonderful partner from this process, letting us understand the problem and also um, Felipe Jaramillo from the World Bank who allowed us to participate. We've been working with the World Bank with our conflict unit, violence and fragility uh, in several joint projects to um, create a team with multilateral banks and support the countries. I don't want to repeat what Andrew has said. There are um, 4.7 million Venezuelans outside their countries, one of the richest countries in the region region in the past, and the situation has four characteristics. One, multidimensional migration. The migration has many causes, but also many effects on the countries where they arrive. This mixed flow, there were several migration periods. This started many years ago. First, we had migrants that were very talented. Uh, they, we had investors coming in. Uh, and if we characterize the migration for what we've been seeing lately, it wouldn't be fair. It's a mixed migration. They've gone to many countries in the region. And though Andean countries have received the largest number, Colombia was received the most, and Peru, Ecuador, Chile, Brazil, there are countries in the Caribbean where as a percentage of the population, the migration of Venezuelans, like in Curaçao, for example, uh, it's 15% of the population. So it's a regional challenge and it's a sudden challenge. This happened in less than four years. These characteristics make it unique and the recipes for this, these issues have not been useful. The countries have had to innovate in the process. The, country, the question is what happened with COVID and the migrants have just said it. What happened in a very complex situation for countries, difficult for the migrants was uh, the situations that became worse. And I will mention five with the proof we 
have had from the region. First, closing borders because of health issues has affected mobility, and many of these migrants had to um, cross in a regular fa uh, way, and that has led to migrant traffic and also difficult travel. The OAS submitted a study uh, recently, also the Secretary General Interpol has also showed increase in that process, in that traffic. Also, uh, the fact that people had to stay at home led to more domestic violence, violence based on gender, and this has happened to most women in the region, and especially to um, women migrants from Venezuela. We have a project, Venezuela Migration, and the numbers show that there is an increase of this violence among this population. Also, in health issue, we've seen an impact, not only because they are part of the COVID victims, but also their mental health. Sometimes this is not mentioned. The International IOM Migration Organization did surveys in several countries in the region and six of every 10 migrants were affected in a complex fashion in their um, in mental health through the pandemic in terms of employment. The uh, Inter-American uh, Labor Absorb Observatory talked about 15 million jobs lost in Latin America and the ILO has said that many of those jobs have taken place in the informal sectors where most of the migrants are. And the second survey of migrants and refugees conducted has shown that one on every four said they had lost their job. I'm not saying this happened only to them. It was for the whole population. This was very critical for Latin America, but this population had an additional uh, impact. For example, in the process of people being run out of their houses in Bogota, in Montevideo, we saw that. Um, food insecurity, as reported by the World Program of um, World Food Program, and also a reduction in uh, their income, an increase in xenophobia as well. The observatory that we have in the bank with a, a, a social media measurements has shown a 70% increase of xenophobia conversations in the countries where there is Venezuelan migration. We don't want just to talk about what's negative. What is positive is that in spite of the situation, countries such as Colombia with a law to temporarily protect migrants, Peru, and we have the Ministry of Foreign Affairs here, they've done a regularization process with a superintendent for migrations, the Dominican Republic. Ecuador has made great efforts in that sense, and the new president has talked about regularizing the situation of migrants. This is the correct effort at midterm, and the banks want to help being the bridge between humanitarian aid and development so that those migrants can be integrated into reality, it's into the society. It's not easy. There are costs. And it's the crisis that's the least financed in the world. Brooklyn Institute studies say that the percentage received by Venezuelan migrants compared to other crises is 10 times less. So to continue getting the generous cooperation of the international community, donors, but also multilateral donors, we are the bridge between humanitarian aid and development so that 
great countries can take advantage of the migrant bonus. It's a very complex situation with COVID, it's social processes. It's difficult to talk about this, but the idea is not to create policies for migrants, but include migrants in social uh, policies for inclusive development in the countries with COVID. This is what's ethically adequate. It's useful, socially necessary, and also economically desirable. And the support, the proofs are given by the banks uh, trying to make this crisis into opportunity. Thank you, Josefina. Thank you, Felipe. Carlos Felipe, in this uh, crisis that is has got less financing, as Felipe has said, plus the health crisis, the urgent claims of the population. What can the countries do to work in the integration of migrants and refugees? How to talk about it to the public opinion? The situation is difficult. What should be the role of development institution and why do we need to increase the help from the international community? Thank you, Josefina. Thank you for that question. And, and thank you all for tuning into this important event. So I will start with your last question. Why is it that the world needs to help? Uh, and I think it's simple. You know, the cost of hosting migrants is considerable, especially in the short run when families arrive destitute and in need of humanitarian assistance. Help is needed in finding um, shelter, in finding schooling for their children, health services for the family, temporary support. And eventually they will need an opportunity to get jobs and to become productive members of their, in their new societies. In Colombia, for example, we estimate conservatively that uh, regularizing migrants and the associated extension of public services to them is costing the government between 0.4 and 0.5% of GDP per year. This is a considerable sum. These hosting countries are providing a global public good, and we should be very grateful to them uh, for being willing to bear such costs. But to be candid, um, yes, the international financial community has uh, put some support on the table, um, but I think, as uh, Felipe just mentioned, this has been uh, quite modest, and it's a fraction of the support mobilized for other migration crises. Uh, for example, he mentioned the Syrian refugee crisis, which uh, per refugee, the external support has been more than 10 times what has been, what has been received in, in, the, in the case of the Venezuelan migrants. This is why we do call upon the international community to deepen its support for this worthy cause. You also asked Josefina about why should countries um, uh, accelerate and help integrate these migrants. Um, and of course, it's because there is a silver lining to this process. The longer that migrants stay, once they're past the initial stage, the more that they can contribute to their host countries. And this is why it's very important to adopt policies and programs that promote and speed up the social and economic integration of these migrants. In Colombia, we estimate that the effective implementation of these policies can eventually contribute up to nearly 1% of GDP growth over the medium and long run as these migrants can contribute to the economy. They become more self-sufficient. They demand more goods and services as they become more independent. They also pay taxes. 
and they can dynamize the local economy and produce higher growth for the overall economy. And finally, you ask what is the role of international institutions like the World Bank and the Inter-American Development Bank? Um, I think we truly are the bridge between um, the humanitarian response, the short-term response, and the development needs. Um, and we have been very active in this problem in, in, in the countries hosting the migrants. Let me give you a couple of examples. We've supported the governments of Colombia, Ecuador, and Peru to gain a deeper understanding of the short-term challenges and the long-term gains of this exodus and to develop strategies to cope. We have, we, in partnership with Canada, that has been a great, a great partner in these efforts. We've supported uh, the government of Colombia to address some of the challenges uh, with, with specific policies and local programs. And finally, we have, if we added up all together over the last three or four years, we put on the table um, $2.7 billion in financing to support host communities and migrants and refugees alike to fast track regularization, access to healthcare, housing solutions, and social safety nets. We are preparing, as we speak, a $500 million credit to support Colombia in the ambitious bet for long-term regularization of the Venezuelans under the temporary protection status. And this will be the first ever policy loan of the World Bank responding to forced displacement uh, of this nature. And we are very happy to support Colombia and the other countries in, in this matter. Over to you, Josefina. Gracias, muchas gracias, Felipe. Les recordamos que Thank este you, Felipe. This event is being transmitted by Twitter uh, at uh, Banco Mundial LAC and also hashtag Migración Venezolana and hashtag Venezuelan Migration. Felipe, talk about the help given by Canada. Now we go to Canada. Minister Gould, thank you for being here. Canada supports the countries that receive Venezuelan migrants, both giving direct assistance, but also maintaining the crisis uh, in the uh, center of public attention. Uh, how can leaders in the region, such as Canada, make, continue maintaining international focus on such a crucial issue? Minister. Thank you, Josefina. And greetings from Canada. For the question, and thank you to the World Bank for this opportunity to raise awareness of the dire situation unfolding in Latin America and the Caribbean. Canada is proud to host the next donors conference on June 17th with the United Nations Refugee Agency and the International Organization for Migration. The conference will focus on four goals. One, to highlight the efforts made to date by all actors, including host countries and communities. Two, to raise awareness in the global community of key challenges and opportunities, including for women, boys and girls. Three, to mobilize additional resources, including through multilateral institutions, such as the World Bank and the Inter-American Development Bank. And four, to ensure that attention is maintained and that commitments are honored going forward. So my message today is a call to action. I call on existing donor countries, as well as new donors, to contribute much-needed support for Venezuelans on the move, as well as their host communities. My message is also a plea for international solidarity. 
First, let me acknowledge the difficult context of the COVID-19 pandemic for all countries, including donor countries. As cruel as the pandemic has been, refugees and migrants, and in particular, women and children, bear a disproportionate burden. Guided by our feminist international assistance policy, Canada ensures that a gendered, intersectional and human rights lens is added to all of our work. This includes promoting safe migration pathways, providing social support, including for LGBTQ2 individuals, Indigenous communities and women and girls, and facilitating access to health services, employment and entrepreneurship. The facts for Venezuelan refugees and migrants are stark. Over half don't have enough to eat. 80 to 90% have lost their source of income. One in four children are separated from their families. And women and girls experience particular challenges, such as gender-based violence and a lack of access to sexual and reproductive health services. Host countries and communities have demonstrated significant leadership to respond to the needs of refugees and migrants. This includes efforts to regularize the status of newcomers and help them access the labor market and basic services, such as education, health, and COVID-19 vaccinations. These actions help Venezuelans build a better future for themselves and their families, and also contribute to a better future for host communities and the region as a whole. But support from the international community falls short. Last year's UN funding appeal only received half of the total amount required to support people in need. Most of this is for basic life-saving support, such as water, nutrition, and shelter. The appeal only begins to cover the expected costs for long-term needs, such as integration. Canada has led efforts to expand the World Bank's global concessional financing facility to support Colombia and Ecuador in their response to the crisis. This included technical assistance to strengthen capacity and promote long-term solutions through inclusive migration policies. Initiatives like these demonstrate how, through funding and international solidarity, we can have an impact now. But the global community must do more in terms of funding. And to those donor countries coming forward with commitments, thank you. Because together we can help the millions of people on the move so that they can look forward with hope toward a better future. So thank you and I look forward to seeing you in June and a big thank you to the World Bank and to all those who organized today's important conversation. Muchas gracias. Gracias. Gracias a usted, eh, Ministra. Muchas gracias por este llamado a la acción de toda la comunidad internacional. Thank you very much for this call to action of the international community. Now we uh, go from Canada to Peru with Ambassador uh, Wagner. Thank you very Peru has integrated Venezuelans in the healthcare system and the vaccination process. What role is a Venezuelan immigration paying in the fight against the pandemic? Thank you for that question. I would like to start my comments by thanking the Migration Policy Institute and the World Bank for this invitation, which is addressing a topic of the utmost importance, how to respond to the Venezuelan exodus with a long-term approach, mindful of the context set by COVID-19 and how to avail ourselves of the strengths of this very large uh, group of migrants uh, 
in our economies and our population that have been affected by the restrictive measures that have been applied in response to the health crisis. So I congratulate you, commend you for this initiative, and I thank you. I also greet the distinguished panelists with whom I'm uh, sharing in this talk. And my dear friend and moderator, Josefina Townsend. As has been said, the mass exodus of Venezuelan citizens is a regional crisis with global reach, which has uh, called upon all of the uh, destination countries to bring to bear response. This was the, is the currently the largest uh, exodus anywhere in the world, 5.5 million people. Peru, from the beginning, has shown solidarity toward this group and has upheld human rights. We have received more than 1 million Venezuelans, making Peru the second the country that has received the second largest number of Venezuelans anywhere in the world. Now we can see the impact of this everywhere in Peru, raising by 3% the overall population of Peru, presenting challenges to our public services that um, were unforeseeable, especially within the context of the pandemic. We have to ensure proper provision of these services and adopt the necessary measures to integrate this um, exodus population into our society to ensure that they have access and full enjoyment of health care services and education. We believe that this challenge also offers us the opportunity to involve Venezuelan citizens in the development of our country and to spur the growth of our economy, availing ourselves of the strengths of this mostly young and skilled population, according to the World Bank. Uh, many of the Venezuelan citizens in Peru have uh, studied in uh, higher education, including at the university level. So that led us to adopt a number of measures to assist in the integration of this population. Ensuring that they are granted the necessary protection they deserve, granting them a temporary residency status for uh, 477,000 Venezuelans have received legal residency temporary and exceptional measures have been adopted to 
forge ahead with the regularization of their migratory status. This done by our migratory office. Three hundred fifty thousand people have benefited from this process and this service. This has made it possible for the entire migrant population to uh, be involved and included in the mass vaccination effort underway in our country in keeping with uh, the national vaccination plan and the provisions uh, for different uh, age groups to receive vaccination according to priorities. We have a special COVID response service those who have graduated in health care fields in Venezuela can become a part of this effort within our health care system. Peru is, holds the pro-temporary chairmanship of the Quito process currently heading up a regional response to the Venezuelan migration crisis. There are four clear areas that we are prioritizing. First, socioeconomic inclusion. Second, healthcare with an emphasis on the COVID-19 response, immigration and granting refugee status and uh, assuring uh, that all this be done in a uh, cross-cutting way to involve the migrant community and uh, providing, where necessary, mental health services. It's necessary for the international community to also take part in helping everyone including the countries receiving the migrants, to rise to the challenge. Within this context, June 17th, as the Canadian minister has said, the second edition of the Donors Conference that is hosted by Canada will be held and uh, the International uh, Migrant Organization and the UN uh, HCR will also be a part of that. So that a response can be, can be brought to bear that is proportionate to the size of this crisis. We hope that this donors conference will effectively contribute to our reaching the goals set forward. Thank you very much. Thank you, Ambassador Wagner. It's uh, great to know that there is a regional response uh, and that mental health is also being addressed. That's something oftentimes overlooked when talking about the Venezuelan migrant crisis now to Colombia, the country that has received the largest number of Venezuelan immigrants. 
Gerardo Botero, recientemente, Ms. Botero has uh, made a bold move toward long-term regularization of Venezuelans with the approval of the temporary approval status for Venezuelans. Uh, now, can you please explain to us what this initiative is, uh, what the reasons are for adopting these measures and what the challenges and barriers have been for implementing it? Muchas gracias, Josefina. Yo quisiera comenzar. Thank you very much, Josefina. I too would like to start uh, by thanking the Migration Policy Institute and the World Bank for this very important opportunity to share the experiences and to shed light on this phenomenon together with this very illustrious uh, panel. Now, you asked about the motivation behind this temporary protective uh, protection status policy adopted in our country. Now, we do have a large uh, border between Colombia and Venezuela, 2,220 kilometers of border between our two countries. Even if we tried to cover all of the different areas and all the needs, it would be impossible. We don't only have culture and history in common, but we do have a long and very porous border. Now, as Felipe was saying, there are nearly 6 million Venezuelans who have left their country and come into ours. We actually have nearly, well, many have uh, visas and a million are irregular. Now, President Duque took office when the situation was already quite uh, complicated. We had nearly 800 uh, regularized uh, Venezuelan citizens and half as many regular ones at that time. Again, now we are at 1 million uh, of irregular status. Now, so the instruments that we have currently in place are not sufficient. So, what is our motivation to issue this permit? This is a overture of solidarity. We are brethren with a similar culture. President uh, Duque, ever since he was a senator, has uh, spoken of the importance of regularizing our Venezuelan brethren, and the situation in Venezuela has gotten increasingly worse. Now, there is a cost in not making decisions, a cost which countries facing the same situation are going to have to face. You've got the irregular or illegal exploitation of Venezuelan workers. These are people, migrants, who bring their families that want to be able to support their families back in Venezuela, and they want to work and uh, the salaries they're being paid uh, aren't uh, necessarily enough. Now, they also face discrimination and uh, face xenophobia, a situation that is exacerbated by the post-pandemic economic situation we find ourselves in now. This leads to high levels of vulnerability and human rights problems, a large number of homes of Venezuelans in Colombia are headed up by women, heads of household. There's a problem of trafficking. If we don't uh, take a census of Venezuelan citizens, we can't help them. We have to identify them and to ensure uh, that they are uh, protected and uh, by the courts. 
Pues no, al no tener un registro de cómo están. The fact that we don't have a registry of where they are, who they are, where they live, we can't help them and uh, nor offer them the levels of protection they require. There's another thorny issue. Felipe and Carlos Felipe have addressed also the problem of costs in Colombia. Irregular Venezuelans can access uh, the emergency health care system, but just to give you some figures, the most uh, common cases, for example, are, uh, is um, delivery, which can cost up to $400 or $500 to give birth. Now, to bring a Colombian into the healthcare system, which is a subsidized system, that costs about $280 for the year. And so that has brought a high cost to the healthcare system. The fact that there are a lot of people coming into the system to receive emergency services, even though this is a subsidized system, which is regular. How our system works. So what makes this a temporary protection status unique? It enables immigrants, those who receive this permit, to stay for up to 10 years in our country. This was hotly debated. Felipe took part and uh, is familiar with that uh, debate. That's a very long time frame, 10 years, but that sends a clear message that this is a long-term issue, giving people time to find a job, to contribute to reactivating the economy, to come into the school system and other systems so that this can be done in a more uh, fluid way over time and that they can ultimately seek citizenship. And that makes it possible for irregular immigrants who have been uh, in Colombia through February 31st this year can uh, access that system and those who come in irregular for the next two years will also have the right to seek this temporary protection status. It also provides a biometric uh, ID cards, which is what completes the registry system, enabling us to know what the traits and characteristics of this population are to be able to assist them. Now, the big challenge that this brings is the cost. Felipe, Carlos Felipe have spoken of that cost and the support given to other migrants, such as Syrian migrants, being 10 times greater than what has happened with Venezuela. You can uh, speak of uh, Sudanese immigrants and the Rohingyas, and this all entails a large uh, cost for our country, a middle-income country that is facing its own very complicated post-COVID period. In the short term, if we look at the numbers that this permit seeks to assist, 1.5 million uh, by the end of the year uh, in phase one will be registered, 800,000 that will actually receive the permit. And uh, in August of next year, we hope to have 1.8 million that is, all uh, of them currently here will be regularized. That's what we seek to do, those who are already regularized, rather. Now, 
This is going to have mass repercussions when you think of uh, what this entails. Now, another challenge that we face as a government is the fact that we, this is a very attractive permit because it opens doors to the Ministry of, uh, it has an effect on the Ministry of Education, uh, of uh, Labor. In the short term, this will make it possible to uh, incorporate socioeconomically the immigrants. Now, there's something else that's key, which is a culture of change, how to address, to tackle xenophobia, to further incorporate this population. And we send with this a clear message that everyone is going to have the same rules will follow the same rules they will contribute to the healthcare system the social protection system and the salary that they will be paid is the same that colombians receive we are putting them on an equal footing uh, so leveling the playing field so to speak for colombians and venezuelans alike but that will call for a change of culture for us to carry out that uh, swift incorporation the last thing that we hope to achieve with this permit is to reactivate the economy, to spur the economy, especially in the aftermath of the COVID-19 crisis. We have seen that with those migrants whose situation has become regularized, of the 700,000 uh, who by November last year were regularized, 300,000 closely were already within the healthcare system, and those that were, were within the healthcare system, half were in the subsidized system and the others were um, in the system uh, where they uh, make regular contributions uh, to the system, uh, pay-to-play system. And so this uh, contributes to the social protection system in our country. I would just like to send the same message that we received from the Minister of Canada and the foreign ministers of Peru and everyone else listening in and taking part. We have this uh, very worthwhile instrument and the will, but we do need the financial support to carry out this economic incorporation. As I, as uh, Carlos Felipe said, in the mid and long term and the IDB's uh, support, we see the figures for temporary protection uh, status in 10 years. This can bring up our GDP by 6.1%, almost 23% over the next 50 years. That is the positive result of regularizing swiftly the immigrants, not just will this benefit Colombians, but everyone. And especially at this time of the post-pandemic response to reactivate our economy, we uh, hopefully we'll be able to spur our economy with this. Thank you very much for explaining to us what the scope of the temporary protection status is for Venezuelan citizens at a time that your country is hard hit by the pandemic and to, uh, to take the approach of trying to change the culture to incorporate Venezuelans. Let's go to the US now with Nancy, Jackson, thank you very much for being with us. Uh, now, how is your country supporting the social integration of Venezuelans, economic integration of these migrants? No, you 
No la oigo. No se te escucha, Nancy. Can you hear me now? No, yes, perfect. Okay, great, thank you. thank you. So first, let me just echo uh, all of the comments from my distinguished panelists and thank uh, the World Bank and both the Migration Policy Institute for having uh, this important panel and keeping a spotlight on Venezuelan refugees and migrants. I think it's really important that we continue to focus on what has been such a huge uh, challenge for the region. And also, I want to uh, extend my um, Thanks for all of the wonderful comments that's been made so far about uh, refugees and migrants and talking about them in a much more positive way than sometimes we've seen uh, in other instances. And the acknowledgement that they can contribute to society, I think, is a wonderful message just starting out and something that we very much support. I am very honored to be here with all of you today and to join this uh, very distinguished group. So. To your question, Josefina, um, yes, we in the United States government very much see the importance of linking humanitarian action with development, longer term development um, solutions. Um, and we are working hard to balance that immediate humanitarian need that we see stemming from this largest forced displacement crisis in this region along with the longer medium and longer term development uh, agenda for the countries. Only this type of partnership between humanitarian and development action will be able to sustain the 5.5 million Venezuelans who have fled their country due to the catastrophic impact of the Maduro regime's abuses, mismanagement, and corrupt practices. We recognize that this crisis is straining the region's capacity, and we thank and support those countries who are generously hosting and providing protection to vulnerable Venezuelans while dealing with the devastating impact of COVID-19 on both their healthcare systems, their economy, and their social systems. The United States is committed to supporting refugee hosting countries in the region as they provide protection and essential services to Venezuelans. To address the medium and longer term needs of this population, my colleagues here at PRM and I work very closely together with our team at the U.S. Agency for International Development, USAID, to build self-reliance in refugee and host communities together through livelihoods programming, entrepreneurship training, countering xenophobia, and supporting national authorities' efforts to provide much-needed access to health care education, and financial services. Underpinning this approach is our commitment to what we call relief and development coherence. And it is that linkage between humanitarian and development action that I'm talking about here. By coordinating and ensuring complementarity between the humanitarian and development assistance efforts, we can promote dignity and self-reliance for Venezuelan migrants and refugees, and also allow them to contribute to the local economies as our panelists have already given great examples of that happening. So for example, from the United States' point of view, um, we, through our, our and our USAID partners, we are supporting Venezuelan health professionals who are residing in Peru to validate their qualifications and become registered to work in hospitals and save lives. We saw that I, at the beginning of this uh, session with one of the Venezuelans who you interviewed, right? Um, as of last year, at least 3,000 Venezuelan surgeons, nurses, and other specialists have been accredited through this program, and that is a 
allowing them to work and to contribute to Peru's efforts to combat COVID-19. We are also supporting the World Bank's efforts to address the development implications of forced displacement, including through the Global Concessional Financing Facility, or the GCFF. We see the GCFF as a huge game changer in our world. It is putting the issue of forced displacement squarely on the longer term development agenda. And it is a concrete example of relief and development coherence in action. In the context of the Venezuela crisis, the United States has contributed $21.8 million via the GCFF to support affordable housing programs for Venezuelan refugees and vulnerable migrants in Colombia. And as already has been alluded to in, in this panel, the Colombian government's February 8th announcement of granting pro temporary protected status for the more than 1.7 million Venezuelans seeking refuge is another game changer for us. Taking this step we know is not easy, but it is one that is grounded in the values that we share and allows families to restart their lives and become contributing members of society once more. And as Colombia looks to implement this historic decision, we will consider additional contributions via the GCFF to support their efforts in implementing such a huge step. These steps and others like them are important developments that we hope will encourage other refugee hosting countries to extend similar rights and services to Venezuelans. Our collective efforts to meet the challenge of the Venezuelan migration crisis need continued support and robust collaboration. And the United States looks forward to joining the June Donors Conference that's being hosted by Canada. And we will continue to work with partners and others to mobilize resources to address the urgent needs inside Venezuela and throughout the region. And on that point, I will just end with noting that the United States remains the largest single donor of humanitarian, economic, and development assistance to the Venezuelan quiet crisis, providing more than $1.2 billion since 2017. And we stand ready to work with all partners to alleviate the suffering of so many Venezuelans who are simply searching for a better life for themselves and their families. And I'll stop there and turn it back to you, Josefina. Thank you very much for having me. Nancy, no, uh, we are happy to hear that the Venezuelans are ready to support Venezuelans and this idea of linking support to migrants with long-term development aid and your participation to the donor conference in um, June. Thank you very much for this exchange of ideas to um, face the impact of COVID and future outlook for Venezuela in the region. Carlos Felipe Jaramillo will give us a summary of the ideas we heard and the proposals that were made. Felipe. Okay. Thank you very much. Gracias, Josefina. Thank you to all the panelists. Um, and I do want to recognize uh, all of them for their uh, great points that have been made here uh, today. Um, I, it's very hard to summarize. I think this, the, the conversation has been quite rich. Let me just maybe make three final points in, uh, that I think align with what has been said. You know, the, the first one is about recognizing uh, the countries, the host countries, and, and calling out for more help. I think um, these countries that we've been discussing, the host countries, have um, and other countries in Latin America that have also opened their doors um, to the migrants, um, they've done a, an admirable gesture 
of solidarity um, and um, we, more more uh, recognition. Um, the, these countries really need to be commended for doing this. And I think um, we all agree that there's more need for support and the international community should um, should come and, and, and help out in this very worthy cause. That's point number one. Point number two, um, uh, there are many challenges. Uh, I think they were very well described uh, by uh, Alejandra, particularly in Colombia, by Ambassador Wagner in Peru. Many daily challenges. It is, it is uh, very large numbers and the short term, the humanitarian, uh, the, the, the struggle to provide the health services, the education services, uh, and to stabilize the situation of these families is, um, is, is quite uh, challenging to the governments. And uh, because the arrival of very large groups of, um, of migrants have had very short-term, important short-term effects, negative effects on public uh, services. Uh, and this, yes, they can be addressed with a big effort, adapting the institutional and the legal frameworks uh, and increasing their capacity to respond. But it is quite an effort, it is costly, uh, and it is important. And I think we all agree that we need to channel the necessary resources to meet the needs of the host communities and the migrants and um, and that investments are required and money is required to expand the offer of services health education infrastructure um, uh, to, to so that the local communities can absorb them uh, without generating um, undue uh, problems and then the third and final message i think um, is that there is a, a positive note to all of this uh, there is a silver lining to this uh, situation, and, and that's we must recognize that there is a big opportunity um, for all of these migrants to um, contribute uh, to the countries where they're coming to. Um, uh, and uh, so it's a two-way um, uh, potential benefit, but, in, but that will take some time. Um, and for this, we need a very, very strong, active uh, response policy so that um, we can prepare the institutions, the society and the communities that are hosting the migrants. Um, and I think it is very important that we recognize that uh, we need to help accelerate this regularization and this adaptation so that the positive side of the equation can happen faster, uh, sooner rather than later. And let me just then end by expressing again our commitment and our solidarity on behalf of the entire panel with those uh, uh, migrants uh, who face the double vulnerability of poverty uh, and migration and who are now also being affected by the COVID pandemic. And our intention uh, from all of us to redouble our commitment to contribute to this big problem, which is I think arguably the greatest humanitarian challenge um, that Latin America and the Caribbean is facing today. Thank you all. Gracias, Felipe. Gracias al Banco Mundial. Gracias Thank you, Felipe. Thank you, the World Bank. Thank you, the Migration Policy Institute, for hosting this um, meeting. Ambassador Gould, Minister Gold, rather, Ambassador Wagner, Alejandro Botero, Felipe Muñoz, Nancy Joe Jackson. Thank you all. And thank you all who have been virtually participating in this exchange of ideas. Good day to you all.